Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. They're not artifacts to me. They're people. They, they, they are the people that wore those things. Mesdames et messieurs. The greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympic fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm injured again. What happened? Okay, so last year, just about this time, mm-hmm. I developed tendonitis in my elbow. Right. Now, tendonitis in my Achilles. No! I am made of glass, apparently. Oh, so what do you have to do for that? Ice, you know, mm-hmm. classic anti- anti-inflammatories and just sort of look really funny when I walk. Oh, well, I hope that clears up relatively yeah. quickly. That is not fun, especially in the cold. Although I guess you could... an excuse not to shovel. <laughs> My ankle Although hurts. You could just I can't st- do it. Stick your foot outside for icing. <laughs> especially today, man. It is brutal. Yes, we are getting some brutal cold in the in the, in new england although we are not as bad as the midwest i will tell you a uh, team olympic fever member jason bryant if you follow him on twitter every day Negative he 22. posts he posts the the yeah every day he posts what the temperature is <laughs> it's he also crazy. did the hot water throwing it out of the mug and turning oh, it he? into snow thing this morning yeah on instagram oh, and it worked he... he threw his mug of hot water wow but i was worried because his hands were bare Oh, right. And you can get when frostbite did it. pretty quickly. I know. I was like, oh, Jason, get inside. I think he's still doing okay. Yeah. But... And he had his, his Matt Talk hat on, so I know his head was warm. It's a nice hat. I love my Matt Talk hat. <laughs> I wear it every time I take the dog out. Thank you, Jason, for our hats. You should go to matttalkonline.com and get your own. Before we get to today's interview, we would like to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters. And we have a, a new one for this month, so I'm very excited. You'll get your Excellent. stuff on the first. And we invest a lot of time and money in this show, and we appreciate all of our patrons who help make it happen. You can join our group at patreon.com slash and get special patron benefits. And I'll tell you, this, this month, the patrons who subscribe to our bronze level and above 
they're getting some good audio clips this week, this month, because they get some free audio or some bonus audio, and they're getting a nice, nice chunk of audio for race walking. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. good. So it's not me insulting anybody. No, no. <laughs> someday, someday I will go back through the archives and pull the table. We'll get an oh. intern. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's your job? Find everyone Allison's insulted. Either, oh, either it'll the take air. a while. It'll take a while, intern. I'm sorry. Oh, this week we are talking history on the show with Terry Hedgepeth. Terry is the historic steward and archivist at the U.S. Olympic Committee. She preserves and protects the history of the USOC and the USOC, U.S. Olympians and Paralympians by preserving the collections of the Crawford family, U.S. Olympic archives. She also presents the Olympic movement in the United States through displays of historic Olympic artifacts by curated exhibits and displays of Olympic artifacts for the USOC throughout the country. Um, we chatted with Terry about the collection, what it's like to be an archivist, and about their big donation from the Crawford family, which uh, recently donated a huge collection of torches and medals and other artifacts to the USOC. So take a listen. So you joined the USOC as its very first archivist in 2012. Is, that's correct, Yes. That is correct. Prior to my coming on board, um, we had a fantastic individual, C. Robert Paul, Bob Paul, who uh, was in our public relations communications department now. And he was the historian. I mean, he, that wasn't his role. That was his passion. And actually, I believe that's how the archives began or the collection began. Uh, from there, uh, it kind of transferred over to our library. We used to have a wonderful sports library, and that position was downsized in 2009 when we had our um, one of our reorganizations. You know, everything became available digitally, and it didn't seem to make sense to, you know, have a, a library that did library loans. It's not our function. So um, that position went away, and the collection that had amassed under Bob Paul and uh, Coca-Cola was going to um, have a Hall of Fame back in the 80s, and that was the first call out for artifacts. So from the 80s up until 2009, anything that came in kind of uh, went to the library and then went to the basement of the shooting building. In 2012, or a little bit before that, someone finally said, wow, we have a lot of stuff down here, and maybe we should um, hire someone to take care of it. And so that's how I came on board. So, so given that it was stored in the basement of the shooting building, what kind of condition was everything in? Oh, don't make me say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, Terry, you need no, to know. Every archivist know that, nightmare. Yeah. I mean. Jill and I are both librarians by training. So there's nothing. Then. Yeah. So there's nothing you can say that will horrify us or will <laughs> or everything will horrify us. <laughs> Well, uh, to be honest, the, the librarian, Cindy uh, Slater, she's now with the Stark Center in uh, University of Texas. She did a, a really great job of doing the preliminary organization um, of the artifacts, I mean, using volunteers. She was the librarian taking care of the library, and she, I believe, had um, volunteers like, okay, here, take it down to the basement, put it in a database and describe it somehow. So we would get things like white pants, 
<laughs> instead of you know, 2014 Sochi Olympic Winter Games, uh, U.S. Olympic parade pants. It was white pants. And, and so we've done a lot of research on the, the beginnings of the collection. It was stored um, in the basement, not, you know, not bad, behind chain link fence uh, in boxes across from the ammunition. So I uh, I don't know if that was a very, very safe place, <laughs> considering the ammunition was stored down there, or a very, very worrisome place. But um, I lived down there for two years, getting to know my collection, doing the initial inventory, and then moving that collection into our archive. Were there days where you just opened up a box and were just amazed at what you found? Oh, gosh, Yeah. Well, honestly, I think between 2009 and 2012, if people needed something, they got the key from whomever had the key, and uh, they'd go down there, rummage through a box, and, and if I was lucky, it, it came back in a, a, you know, a box, a Walmart bag was put on the shelf just by itself. So there was a lot of matching things up and trying to determine what had been processed. There was a huge amount of artifacts that had not ever made it into that initial database. And that was, you know, once I did the inventory of what was on hand, what was in the database, then it was my responsibility to add all of the rest of the stuff and, and continue to do that. But, uh, I mean, for example, I mean, we opened up a box and uh, we were, it was actually this box, it was a huge crate, and it was actually in the basement of our dining hall. And we were so excited. We're like, oh my gosh, we found Lake Placid torches. I mean, it's, this was like the major find. They were in bits and pieces. And then I did research on them. I mean, everything was matching up. It was like the leather handle, check. Turner Industries, check. And then I found the, the top part of the torches, and they weren't the burnished bronze. They were silver. I'm like, what? Uh, so what I think happened is that Turner Industries made a bunch of torches that were not like Placid torches, but were used for other events, maybe special events um, for the USOC. Uh, Turner Industries also made the Los Angeles 1984 torch as well as the Lake Placid uh, 1980 torches. So I, I'm thinking somewhere in between 80 and 84, they're like, yeah, this is a great design. We don't want to confuse it with the Lake Placid torch. We'll change it to a silver finish instead of the burnished bronze. So, I mean, so excited at one point, you know, just thrilled jumping up and down. And then, you know, bitter realization hits you and you're like, oh, okay, mm, nice to have, but... Not what I thought it was. Were there things that were fault have have deteriorated because of how they were stored, and you really couldn't salvage? Yes, um, absolutely. Um, the basement proved to be problematic, um, in, especially in spring. Water would seep down the walls. And and I can remember one point, you know, it's very quiet. Usually it's so noisy because they've got these huge air handlers. They, they have a couple ranges down there and other things going on. And I can remember going back into the collection at one point. I'm like, I hear something. And it was that drip, drip. And you're like, oh, oh, no. No. Oh. <sighs> You know, it was, it's terrible that, you know, you go, oh my gosh, how long had this been going on? You have no idea. You know, we hurriedly, you know, pulled the records that were damp, got plastic to put over every shelf. I mean, I mean, it looked like 
oh, I don't even know what it looked like. But it was, you know, I asked a facility, so I need plastic sheeting and I need it now. And I'm thinking clear plastic sheeting. They brought me heavy black plastic sheeting. <laughs> so everything was just covered in black uh, plastic, which, you know, when facilities answer the call that quickly, I don't question it. I just spread it. And, and uh, <laughs> I mean, and it was the point where my poor, my poor supervisor, you know, I would, you know, email him pictures because, you know, we're anal, we're archivists. This is what we do. You know, pictures of this, pictures of that. And on this date, at this time, <laughs> I finally think they're like, all right, get this lady some money, please. So she stops <laughs> bothering us. <laughs> But I mean, yes. I mean, we uh, some of our paper records, um, the, the old-fashioned um, duplicate records. You know, that very you know, like that onion skin, and you know, stuck together. And we've had some issues with that. Thankfully, when it's come to the physical artifacts themselves, I think I lost a couple posters uh, into that dreaded mold. But, you know, other than that, we were very fortunate. And because of where the leak was, it was over paper records and not over our artifacts. Oh, that just breaks my heart. Oh. <laughs> oh my gosh! It 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 would just absolutely, you, you know, a joke. And I don't even know if I should say this, but, um, you know, I, I went into the collection during my interview, and it was a wonderful, you know, full day interview. And and uh, we had photographs in one room, and then we uh, the photographs were not in the basement. No, thank goodness. Neither were the books. They were in the the library that had the door locked on it. And then they took me down to the basement, and and I can remember just looking at this collection. And then when I, after I got hired, which I worked very hard to convince them that I was the right person for the job. I, then I joke later, I'm like, I'm the only one that didn't run screaming from the basement. I'm sure that's why you hired me. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's been a major accomplishment and, and just has given me such satisfaction to actually walk into a collection in that environment and have it transform into this awesome archive, which you have to come and see. You you positively have to come and see. So you got this beautiful new space. Mm-hmm. What 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 are what are we looking at in the space? Not a basement. Oh gosh, no. We are on the second floor of our headquarters building. We um, have almost the entire second floor. It's about sixty five hundred square feet, I'd say. I mean, this was an old, huge. Uh, building downtown. There's six floors to it. I, I believe at one point it had a church in it, um, a publishing or newspaper office was in here, a um, clothing store was in here, and now we're in here. And we met with our donor, Gordy Crawford, uh, shortly after I came on board. I got hired in July. I met with him first in September. Later, he came to see our collection in October. And by the 1st of 2013, I mean, he had donated the funds earmarked for the archives, you know, not just general, here's a donation to the USOC. He was very specific, like, okay, and this part goes to the archive, to build an archive. And we started talking with, uh, we, we sent out RFPs to architects and uh, construction contractors to have them bid a build out. And we actually went with a very wonderful local architect, um, CSN and Associates, Gregory Friesen. 
worked with us. And it was so funny. I mean, I'd go to his office and we'd sit there with the, the plan on his big screen and uh, like, okay, Terry, what do you think about this? And, and I was all about maximizing um, storage space. Like, okay, we got a wall here. We're going to do a display on one side. How about underneath it? We put shelves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. All right. Here's a gap. Put shelves, you know, everywhere we could, it was like, put shelves, put shelves. And, uh, I mean, it was a lot of fun being involved in that and understanding what absolutely uh, uh, takes place. And uh, just, uh, it was thrilling. And, uh, you know, by the, what was it? I think we moved in August 2014 and had a great time uh, working with the contractors as well. It got to the point where, hey, we're going to put carpet in. No, no, you're not. You know, it, it off gas. I can't do that. Okay, we're going to give you some really nice wood but, uh, built-in shelves. Nope, nope, can't do that. Don't need that. I need powder-coated metal. And, you know, by the by the end of it, the contractor's like, maybe we should ask Terry what kind of countertops <laughs> instead of just going with what we want. So it, it was good, and it's it's beautiful. Well, the pictures are stunning, and it it's anything any librarian or archivist would just be thrilled to work in because so often the archives is in the basement with no windows and <laughs> no air. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I love touring and, and visiting other people's collections. And it's not, you know, it's more like what issues are you facing? And I always love going back you know, behind uh, behind the closed doors into their storage facility. And so often I've got people, you know, that say, oh, we're so sorry. I'm like, no, no, I get it. I'm, I was there too. Or I go into a facility. We went and toured History Colorado. I took my staff there um, in December and we're looking at their facility. I'm like, yes, ours is like theirs. Theirs is just 10 times bigger, but ours is just like theirs. So, you know, we get very thrilled when we see stuff like that and we know we're on the right track. So when it's Gordy Crawford, right? Gordon Crawford? Yes, it okay. is. So when he made the, the monetary donation, did you also know you were going to get his collection as well? Not at the time, no. He had donated the funds, um, became more and more involved with the USRC, with our development uh, department. Um, he's currently our the president of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Foundation, and it wasn't until we completed construction and he was finally able to see the archive that we built with his gift to us um, that his wife, I mean, honestly, uh, Donna, she's just a wonderful lady. She's like, okay, Gordy, now you can donate your collection. And, you know, and he's grinning you know, and smiling like, yeah, I'm not done playing with it. You know, and, the, you know, later in the year, yeah, still playing with it, but, you know, I'm thinking about it. And, you know, another visit. Okay, maybe in ten years. Maybe you know, maybe yeah, yeah, maybe ten years. So we were thinking, we you know, maybe twenty twenty four, twenty twenty eight, we might get it. And we were absolutely astonished when when he decided to gift it to us um, much sooner than that. But you know, honestly, I think it was it's because of the U.S. Olympic Museum. He. Um, he values uh, sharing the Olympic movement with um, the, you know, the rest of the world. His collection wasn't seen by anybody except his personal friends in his home. By gifting it to us, we're able to loan it to the museum, and his collection will be viewed by 
millions, you know, over over the course of, uh, you know, however many years. I mean, it's just a phenomenal win-win-win situation for everybody. So what is your relationship? Now, the museum opens in 2020. Yes. What is your relationship with that organization? I... Um, I assist them. It's a private foundation. Um, run. Uh, we have. They have a. Um, uh, Chris Lydell is their uh, chief executive officer. They've got um, a wonderful group of contractors and consultants and museum designers and AV audio visual you know gurus working with them. The USOC, we're here to facilitate in whatever manner we can. We uh, assist them with marks approval through the IOC, uh, audiovisual request through the IOC. They know we have this collection. We want to share it and uh, loan it to them so people can see it. So they're thrilled to be able to choose parts from our collection, the artifacts, the photographs, uh, you name it. So my role is to facilitate, to assist however and wherever possible I can. And I've, uh, I've been fortunate enough to serve on many of the committees that, that chose their um, first companies to work with them. And I continue to work with their consultants. Uh, you know, we, we just go back and forth. Okay, we're thinking about, you know, this topic. Yeah, that, that's great. Or, you know, they'll give me a plan and I'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah. However, did you think about this story or that athlete? Or maybe you need to consider these issues that, that, that you haven't even thought of. Like no carpet. <laughs> No, no, I don't even have to worry about that. They've, they've got <laughs> professionals working on that. We're we're fine with that. Um, you know, it, it's so funny. I, when the first couple of times I meet with, uh, I met with them and they're great berry projects, and uh, you know they've they've done so much research and they've they've talked to athletes and you know Olympians and Paralympians and coaches and you name it. They they're really trying to make sure they get this right. Olympic historians, you name it, they've talked to them. And then you find out what people like. And, you know, it's track and field, track and field, track and field and swimming, you know. And so it's me, you know, the voice of reason. Hey, a few more Olympic summer sports out there than track and field, swimming and gymnastics. Just saying, you know. And, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, okay, well, well who can we talk about? What story can we tell? Like, oh, yeah, well, how about Daryl Pace? You know, they, you know, archery. Or how about, you know, um, you know, uh, rugby sevens or, you know, you know, women's soccer, anything. You know, we, we go around and round like that. Now, you mentioned that you've been working with the IOC. What's your relationship with that? Because they obviously have their own archives and their own museum. So oh, how does absolutely. that operate? Uh, you know, and I, I can't speak for them. I, I don't know their their operations. Um, we're completely independent. They are the International Olympic Committee. We are the United States Olympic Committee, of course. And they have their great, fantastic collection, and we are building our great, fantastic, <laughs> wonderful collection. Do you ever get together with, or at least virtually with some of the other archivists around who also do Olympic kind of archiving in their own national committees? I, um, I've talked to a couple here and there, and it's interesting. Amazingly enough, not every country has an archive or is archiving or preserving their history. 
and and that's that's a tough one. Now, it doesn't mean that Olympic history is not being preserved within their country, but it's more left to maybe a national museum um, to do that or the city in which the uh, Olympics occurred. For example, the Atlanta History Center has a lot of records on the Atlanta 1996 Games. LA84 Foundation has a lot of artifacts uh, pertaining to the 1984 games in Los Angeles. Um, Salt Lake uh, Park City has a wonderful skiing and Olympic museum there. And, and Lake Placid, same thing. I, I think that's phenomenal that each city, each area that's hosted a games is proud of their Olympic history and is taking measures to safeguard it. However, you know, I'm responsible for the Olympic and Paralympic movement in the United States or of the United States. And, you know, I, I talked to Allison in Lake Placid, who runs the Lake Placid Museum, and she, she has a fantastic collection on uh, bobsled and winter, you know, Lake Placid. I'm like, that's great, and that's wonderful. And I talked to my friend Karen, who runs U.S. Figure Skating Hall of Fame, and she can quote anything you ever want to know about figure skating, you know, from the costumes to the choreographer to the music. And, you know, like, that's great, Karen. I have a few more sports I have to worry about. That's sort of how, like, we feel sometimes, too. (laughs) (laughs) What were some of the sports you really had to kind of learn about and learn the Olympic, at least the American Olympic history of? You, you know what? Um, you know, just like I said, people know track and field and swimming, gymnastics as summer sports. I, I, you know, guilty. I'm a track and field high school runner. I'm a fencer in college. You know, that's what I know. Uh, team handball. This is something I'd never you know, had been exposed to before. And one of our, well, Cindy Stinger, our alumni manager, is a team handball Olympian. And she's just, she's passionate about her uh, Olympians, her classmates, and her sport. And it was so funny. I was like, yeah, Cindy, I watched Team Handball for the first time. And she's just like, gets all excited. Like, it's great, isn't it? I'm like, yeah. I mean, it's it's indoors. It's like indoor soccer, handball, you know, you name it. I mean, it, it's a rough and tough sport. And I'd never, I'd never heard of it before until I started working here. Sad to say. I that's, I want to talk about the collection a little bit. Um, sure. I'm I'm curious to know some of the oldest things you have. How early? Well, the oldest thing that we have in our collection is actually a piece of ancient Olympia. Uh, the Hellenic Olympic Committee, uh, and I don't know if they gave it to a piece of ancient Olympia to every single National Olympic uh, Committee or not. I just know that we have a piece of ancient Olympia um, verified by the Hellenic Olympic Committee in our archive. So that's going to be the oldest thing that we have in our collection. Modern Olympic times, we have the medals uh, from 1896. We have some images, very few uh, images from 1896. I we did not the USOC, the American Olympic Committee at the time, did not create standardized uniforms per se. I mean, they you know ad hoc piece something together. It wasn't like they requested a, a company uh, to create it. So I don't have samples of uniforms or anything like that. So it, it's uh, I have a little bit of that, 
And, yeah, uh, we have an image from 1885, like the first crouching start in track and field. You know, can you imagine? You know, you see this guy, you know, <laughs> down on his hand, you know, with his hands on there and everyone else is standing up. And you're like, what in the world is he doing? But, you know, you know, here it is, history. We know what the, how important that was. How How big is your staff? Uh, never enough. You know, history, museums, archives, we do so much with so little. I mean, you could ask any organization. My staff, I have a um, digital archivist that is actually uh, brought on and paid by the U.S. Olympic Museum. They wanted to borrow our photographs, and they were willing to bring in a staff member to digitize them for us. So we have our digital archivist. I have um, an intern. Every six months, we get a new intern, and she does all of the processing of artifacts that come in. Then I have a couple wonderful volunteers that, that assist with other projects. We have an agreement with um, UCCS, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, their history program. They have a minor in museum studies. And you know, usually at least once a year, we will have um, students come in and gain course credit for the work that they do in the archives. So that's a, that's a wonderful uh, solution to special projects that we have. And then there's me, <laughs> and that's it. What do you find people coming in wanting to use the archive for? Uh, you know, it varies. Our organization uses it quite extensively. Um, we use the images um, for social media. Our alumni uh, manager, every quarter, she puts out a, a journal, The Olympian, and we provide her with images of those um, athletes that have um, passed away in the previous quarter. We use our collection for displays, media summit, um, Olympic assembly. We will do displays as our departments request meetings and events or communications or development, you know, whomever is, is asking for something. Outside entities use our collection. We get a lot of requests for artifacts from other historic entities. Sometimes we loan our artifacts to major sponsors. Right now we have some uniforms with Toyota. Um, Visa has, re has um, received items from us. It, you know, it's, we don't receive uh, government funding. All of our funding is through donations and sponsorship. So when a sponsor says, hey, we'd love to have an Olympic torch on display for this meeting, I do everything I can to make sure that we can do that for them as long as it is protected and taken care of, you know, to the standards that I need it to be. And I have, I think once in the six and a half years I've been here, I was disappointed in the way my artifacts came back. And I <laughs> sent an email to um, our, our person who handled that account, like, I'm never, never going to loan to them again. And they came back immediately. Let us make this right. Let us take care of it. Okay, okay, okay. And and they did. And it, and you know, that was wonderful. Do you now I'm not going to ask you for a favorite because I know there's there's <laughs> no. That's a terrible question. But how about what were you the most excited to find when you were first um, cataloging? I think some of the items in that initial Excel spreadsheet that I'd received were actually 
cataloged incorrectly. And I'm thinking of a 1912 gold medal that we have. It was uh, cataloged as a coin. And when I first came on board, I just took it at face value. And then when I started the inventory and I started doing research a little bit more and I came across this artifact again, I realized it was not a coin, but it was in fact a solid gold 19, no, it wasn't solid gold. Sorry. I wish it was. It was the um, gilded um, gold 1912 Olympic medal. In 1908 and 1912, the design is a little bit bigger than a quarter, not as big as a 50 cent piece. They use the exact uh, design. They just changed the name from London to Stockholm. And in both of those, they um, issued solid gold medals for individual events and gilded medals uh, for team events. So I, I knew it was either a team event. It had to have been for a team event, but I could, there was no other identifying marks. But that was really exciting for me to take something that we didn't even know we had and go, yes, we have this. I love that. I, I love the research involved in our artifacts. And when things come in, we don't just research the artifact. I mean, we research an item of clothing, let's say. Um, and I'm looking at a 1980 hat that our wonderful mayor donated just recently. It's still on my desk. And I will research, you know, how, why was this hat created? Who created it? Who was the owner of it? So it's not just the article itself that we research. We want to learn about the designer, the owner, and, and its use. It, uh, and, and that's how we really flesh out our knowledge. And that's how we can use these awesome artifacts to tell an athlete's story. I, I love it when we can display... Um, like Jeremy Abbott's um, figure skating costume from Sochi 2014, the one, and if you were watching him compete, when he fell and he slammed into the wall, and then he got up and finished his, his routine. I mean, I, I get chills every time I think of that. We have that costume in our in our collection, and I can tell his story by, you know, showing people that collection. It's not just a costume. That's Jeremy Abbott. And when I bring people into the archives and I and we've got a lot of stuff out, I'm like, okay, there's Tony Acevedo, there's Greg Luganis, there's J.R. Selsky. I'm looking at J.R. Selsky's boots. I'm looking at, you know, a scrapbook from Greg Luganis, or I'm looking at uh, Tony Acevedo's water polo trunks and headgear. But they're not artifacts to me. They're people. They they are the people that wore those things. And that's what I absolutely positively love about what I do here is that I'm archiving our athletes' history. And through these, you know, they're like, yeah, you want this? I'm like, yes, I want that. You know, through things they don't even realize how important or valuable they can be to, to public memory. What's your holy grail that you don't have? Oh. <laughs> Uh, uniforms. Um, oh gosh, I, I love I love our competition uniforms. I love our parade uniforms. I, I have a lot of them more contemporary. And since I've been here, I know my collection. And when I meet with athletes, I can say, Oh, I don't have anything from that or your sport or this year. My holy grail. Uh, I think it would be the holy grail um, of virtually every collector. Uh, including the IOC, and that would be a 1904 St. Louis 
gold medal from athletics, from track and field. Those medals actually state Olympic Games on them. They're on a ribbon. We don't have one of those in our collection. The IOC doesn't have one in their collection. The only one that I know of is in L.A., and that is it's a phenomenal medal, and um, the circumstances around it are, are unique because we actually have two gold medals from St. Louis, 1904, but the Olympic Games were held during the World Exposition, the World's Fair, and it went on for months. And very few people even were aware that there was an Olympic Games that were going on. So true collectors go, okay, the track and field events, that's the heart, that's the meat of the Olympic Games. Those are the medals that they they consider the, you know, creme de la creme, the pie in the sky. You know, if I could ever get anything I ever wanted, that would be it. Wow. Well, good luck. I hope it, you know, it's probably yeah. in somebody's basement, <laughs> in a box, in the basement, you know, you, next you to a leak. You just never know. Yeah, <laughs> it's the truth. It, it, it truly is. Um, as a matter of fact, our gold medal that we have, we have a gold medal from 1904 uh, in golf, and it's the team event in golf, and it's H. Chandler Egan, E-A-G, I'm sorry, E-G-A-N. And after he passed away, his family was going through this home, and they found it in a metal box behind some books on his bookcase. They didn't even know he had it. I mean, it is phenomenal. And I did some research on this metal because, you know, when it comes in, I want to know. I want to find out. And it went to, on loan to the USGA uh, for a couple of events they had, and that was that end of that article. And here I am looking at it in my hand going, you dog Gordy, you bought that medal from the U, you know, before anybody else could. I mean, thank goodness he did. But it's just so neat to say, here's a medal that was lost to history that even the family was not aware of now in our possession and safeguarded. And, and you know, now we can tell its story and its history and how it came about to be here in our collection. Okay, when's the next flight to Colorado Springs? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, we haven't even begun intern. to talk about the torches. I mean, you know, there's so many cool, cool things. It's it's amazing. Um, some of the torches that we have are just absolutely beautiful, and they're, they're just wrought with all kinds of meaning for the region that um, hosted the games. Uh, the Salt Lake Torch, uh, it's designed to – Salt Lake 2002, it's a winter games. It's designed to look like an icicle. Um the theme of the games was light the fire within. So the flame is actually encased in a glass um, kind of protector. The the flame comes out of copper, copper uh, hearkening to its copper mining. The the base, the rest of the icicle is actually burnished or, you know, like a, a rough silver and then a polished silver. And that represents the old and the new, and you're supposed to hold it at the juncture of the two. I mean, I love it when someone is taking so much time and thought into designing uh, an Olympic torch where you can have so much meaning like that. And I mean, that's just one of the torches. I mean, you, you could, you know, the, the Beijing 2008 torch is rolled up like an ancient Chinese scroll and there's clouds on it, which represent harmony and in, in uh, Chinese culture. Just, just, and they're beautiful works of art. Not only, you know, great, it represents this awesome 
you know, relay from the ancient games to the modern games, but it's also a, it's just a, a beautiful piece of, of history that is being carried along that represents usually its, its region now. For people who have their own collections of whatever, how do you preserve some of this stuff? Or what is the best way if you have an item of clothing or paper or something like a pin or a torch? Well, for a personal collection, it, it, it kind of varies. Pictures, I, I hate it. It's terrible. I shouldn't say hate. I, I dislike, strongly, strongly dislike when I see people putting them in the albums that we all put our photos in with the, that kind of that sticky background and then that plastic overlay and they kind of stick there and you never can get them off again. The materials that are used are so full of acid that it robs the, the, the images of their color. So when people say, you know, how should I store my, my photographs? And honestly, if you have a shoebox and you can stack them up, do that. If you want to put them, you know, put a piece of paper in between, just use plain copy paper. Most of that is almost, you know, archival in nature now um, and, and write on there. Don't forget to journal your photographs. Don't assume you're going to remember that Aunt Mame is, you know, in this picture next to your Uncle George, because trust me, I've got my dad's photo albums and I can't tell you who is who, even though I can remember being, you know, oh my gosh, rolling my eyes going, here we go again. There's Aunt Mame, there's Uncle George. And I can't tell you who is who. I wish I'd I wish I'd written it down. So always, always write it down. Uh, use a pigma pen. Don't use ink pen. Pencil. Now you can use pencil. It'll fade. You know there there's certain things. When it comes to your clothing, um, you know if you've got a suit jacket, put some tissue in the um, in the sleeves. You know up by the shoulders. Uh, you you want to keep that nice 1980s shoulder pad look. You know if you're archiving from that generation. Uh, you know, just uh, hang it up if you want to. Take it out of the plastic bag that the uh, dry cleaners gave it to you because that is a mi you're creating a micro environment, and you never know what kind of sugars or what kind of chemicals they used, and you don't want that reacting with your material. We uh, we don't have space for closets and closets. We use acid-free boxes. We line them with um, either buffered or unbuffered tissue, and we, you know, like I said, we stuff the shoulders. We put layers of tissue on these things, and we pack them um, very carefully. The biggest thing that hurts, that is detrimental to personal collections, are heat and humidity. Honestly. It, People, oh, we're going to put this up in the attic, and heat will destroy paper records. It will destroy photographs so quickly. Oh, we'll put this in the basement, and you got that wet environment. Cool is great, yes, but you don't want it to get flooded. Um, trust me, don't do that. <laughs> But, you know, that's what we do. I mean, it's where it's it's what we have. So, you know, it's it's a tough one. There's different um, temperature and humidity standards for it depends on what type of material that you have, if it's a coin or um, if you're a stamp collector or, or not. You know, there used to be 
um, creative memories. I started that, you know, as a mom, and they were very careful, you know, really concerned about all of the acid and the things that, you know, are detrimental to your, your photographs and, you know, about journaling, about writing down who is who. And there are wonderful um, stores out there now. Even Michael's, you know, will sell things that you can buy. And there's, you know, professional entities that I use that I, I purchase my supplies from. Um, plastic sleeves, you know, to put your photos in or, you know, just boxing it, you know, or protecting it the best you can, but paying attention to the amount of heat and humidity that it, um, your artifact is around. Those are the, the main things, honestly. And, you know, I I look at my collection at home. I don't I don't collect Olympic. It's, I, I cannot. I, it's um, ethically, I cannot collect what I archive. And I'm very, I'm very careful about that. I don't want any conflict at all. So you're not going to see anything like that. But, uh, you know, I have my own little collections of this or that. And it's like, yeah, it's on my shelf, you know, and I dust it every now and then. And I try not to put it in direct sunlight. And that's about it. And, you know, and I'm a professional, but it's my home. It's mine. I want to love it. I want to see it. So, it, you know, it's tough to actually have archival standards in your own collections at home. Do you accept just private donations that people might have in their home? Yes, yeah. So here's my official elevator speech. Um, my mission is to capture the history of the Olympic and Paralympic movement in the United States, and we do that strictly through donations. Donations from our athletes, our Olympians and Paralympians, uh, from Team USA, anyone who's worked in our organization and gone to a game may have picked up something, and members of the public. That final line right there, the public, that is America. And sometimes it's even international people that want to donate. I have gone to people's homes, um, picked up artifacts. I have, you know, had them ship it to me, uh, multiple boxes, one box, one item. And unfortunately, I've had things just dropped off downstairs. Hey, you know, you're the U.S. Olympic Committee. My dad had this. We don't need it. Well, wait, wait, wait. We need to get your contact information. No, no, it's okay. And they walk out the door like, no, I need a deed of gift. I need to track everything that comes in. Um, so, yeah, I do. And and that's the thing. So I'm, I'm going to make a, um, a public service announcement here. I need items. I don't, I you know, yeah, I do. Yeah, I was just like, do I need or do I want? No, I need. I need some 1964 Tokyo artifacts. We're coming into Tokyo 2020 next year, and I want to have some really awesome displays. So, if you know of anyone who has uh, something they, they picked up, if they went to the games, uh, if you know an athlete that attended the games, competed in the games, you know, have them reach out to me. Love to see what they have. Will do. Definitely. <laughs> I do that. You know, I feel I, I'm really I'm really a nice ask. I am. It usually takes three to five contacts with an athlete before they donate, but I am persistent and I never I never um, let go of an opportunity or I never let an opportunity pass by to ask. I mean, you can ask people in my own organization like, hey, I came from soccer. You came from USA Soccer? Okay, this is what I need. Who do you know? <laughs> they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll reach out to them. Yeah, no worries, you know, as they back away from me. <laughs> 
Be careful of Terry at the cocktail party. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. But, you know, the good thing is I am an archivist. Uh, I am an introvert at heart. You know, I do love talking about my collection. I love sharing it. But when I get into big, big groups like that, I have a tendency to, you know, go towards the side. I'm, I, Yeah, it, it's okay. I'm much better one-on-one. <laughs> Thank you so much, Terry. This has been really interesting for us to learn what you have. We're excited about you know, our, our impending trip to Colorado Springs that will <laughs> we'll make <Yeah>. happen <laughs> at some point. Well, you know, don't forget, we have that little itty-bitty uh, hill in the backyard, you know, Pikes Peak. You oh, can right, come right. out and see. <laughs> come out in 2020 when the museum opens. You'll get to see Gordy's collection in the museum. And then, you know, come over and you can see all the other things that didn't make well, it into the museum. That's definitely on the calendar. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Ah. Thank you so much, Terry. If you follow Terry on LinkedIn, you'll see that she regularly posts some really cool artifacts. Like right now, she's got a, um, a patch from Tokyo 1964 up, and she recently posted a luggage decal from 1936. And it's really cool, the stuff that she gets access to and, and has in the collection. And it's a really fun way to follow along and, and share that with the rest of us. So Okay, so you know that... Those movies, the Night at the Museum movies? Yes. I want to get locked in the USOC archive. <laughs> I know. I know. All you need is a day. Well, not really. But a day. Like, I, I mean, can you imagine going into that basement? And, and I just kept picturing the, like, the last scene of Indiana Jones where they put the Ark, you know? And, it's, and, and granted, it's probably not as, as big, but just like boxes and boxes and you just open it and uncover stuff. But can you imagine like oh, every box is a new surprise and you don't know what's going to be in there and it could be something really cool or something extraordinarily cool well i worry about you open the box and there's something alive in there (laughs) right or oh my gosh leaky mold oh man that would oh my god yeah right yeah when she was saying they were in the basement with shooting i'm like all my librarian brain started spinning of horror stories <laughs> of what could have happened down there. But thankfully it doesn't sound like they lost much no, no, to the thank conditions, goodness, which thank is good. Oh, but what a cool job to have. Oh, Terry, I think we, we might have some people that if you need a vacation, they will fill in for you. Right. Or like uh, to be an Olympian and be able to donate your stuff. And, and know it'll be sto- taken care of. Right, and have your story preserved. I mean, that's got to be really interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, don't forget that one of the easiest ways to support the show is by shopping on Amazon. And the next time you need to get something from Amazon, stop by our website first. That's olimfever.com. Click on the Amazon banner. We will get a little commission from your purchases, and that really helps us put together more cool Olympic fever things as we get to closer to Tokyo 2020. And that takes a little bit of financial investment, so we really appreciate your support. And this is an easy way to help us out. Thank you. Moving on to our Tokyo 2020 update. So you you found this out. Yeah, so over 200,000 people applied for the 80,000 volunteer spots. And that may sound like a lot. It does. But that was actually the lowest number of applicants since 2004. Which amazes me. Yeah, so for Beijing, they had over a million people apply. Okay, that I understand because there are a lot of people in China and I bet it was a huge honor to be 
a volunteer there. Exactly. So I think it more has to do with it's difficult to travel and expensive to travel to Japan. But a few weeks back, we talked about what the name was going to be for the volunteer. So that was selected. They will be called the field cast for the people who are helping at the games themselves. And then the volunteers around the city will be called the city cast. Hmm. All right. Not bad. I liked field force. Uh, yeah, you know? I know the like, force would be. And the shining blue and, you know, the shining blue, the one that I liked so much, last place. <gasps> no. Oh. Yeah. Well. Oh, well. And this will probably be the last time we ever hear field cast or city cast. Right. Because we didn't even know that those terms existed. <laughs> so I'm okay with They will probably use them within, case. they will try really hard to make them click and it just won't. Right. That's my guess. But I'm hope here's hoping for cool uniforms. Yeah. I bet, they, I bet they get some. So good luck to the people who applied for the slots. If you end up getting a volunteer spot, let us know so we can celebrate with you and learn more about what you're doing at the games and how it goes for you. And uh, maybe we'll even run into you in Tokyo. Moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. Book Club Claire told me it was okay for me to say tofu, that I wasn't annoying. <laughs> so I'm going to go with that. It's for you, Claire. Wonderful news from U.S. Nationals, where Deanna Stellato and Nate Bartholomew finished third, and they had two beautiful programs. I was so happy for them. Did you cry? A little bit, you know. I, I did. I mean, I got to say, Nate looks so freaking strong when he I know. lifts her. It's amazing. Their lifts were so difficult. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. And so. he just puts her up there like, dum -da dum -da dum no problem. And the, the program was beautiful. And I, I had to watch it a couple of times because the first time I watched it, I watched it without knowing the results. Oh, okay. So I was so nervous. <laughs> I couldn't enjoy it. And then the second time I watched it, I started crying because I knew it was clean and mm -hmm. it was good and mm -hmm. they just had a couple of little little things mm -hmm. and then so it took the third time for me to really enjoy it oh but but it uh, was and oh in their short program the spins were so on point it was and the crowd knew it and really got behind them and i had seen yeah. something with deanna afterwards where she was like yeah they started cheering for our spins <laughs> and and he and nate said that it was then got to be a little difficult to hear the count for the spins. Right, because they call to each other. Yes. And that was kind of funny that that, that element was really something they had to concentrate even more on doing because of that. But, you know, oh, man. That has to be really get you pumped up to, to know that people are understanding of what it takes to do that element correctly and, and appreciate it in that way. Right. And they always talk about, oh, this is a knowledgeable crowd. But it actually was. A, Detroit was a yes. great host city for yes. the Nationals. So yes, good big, job to yes. uh, Charlie to White, White and, yes. uh, and Meryl Davis. Meryl Davis, thank you for their honorary chairmanship. The yes. Detroit did the proud. Moving over to the bobsled track. The bobsled uh, World Cup was in St. Moritz, Switzerland this past weekend, and Lauren Gibbs was back with uh, driver Alana Myers-Taylor, and they won handily. They won, like, by 0.6 seconds. It was amazing. So, good for them. And they, and they got giant bottles of champagne. <laughs> I love it. 
they were huge. I mean, they weren't just like mega bottles. They were really, really big. Wow. And, you so, <laughs> and they have to drink them because they can't bring them back. Right? <laughs> well, you probably could. Well, you know, they're driving around for a while. Just get a topper yeah. and just drink off it a little bit every night. <laughs> or, you know, share with the entire team. I don't know. <laughs> it, I wonder if they get some of these awards and go, I don't know what to do with this. I wonder if there are hotels all over Europe where the cleaning staff has like random things like giant bottles of champagne or silver bowls that people just leave behind because they can't be bothered. Interesting. Well, we'll have to start asking. Yeah. What did you do with your giant bottle of champagne? And if you need some help with it, yeah, do you, you want me to come with you to San Fritz next time? Be your traveling companions. I can carry bags. There you go. At the same race, Josh Williamson was in Cody Bascu's sled for the four-man, which placed ninth. And then he was also in the two-man with driver Justin Olson, and they placed 16th, which was really good. Which was really good. I mean, he's getting, he's improving, steadily, steadily improving, which is great for first season on the World Cup. Absolutely. And then a, a follow-up to last week, uh, Mary Ann Daniel, our race-walking judge, she had gone to London right after... I went to that meet in Long Island, and that was for the international judging exam, and she heard back that she made the top 20 scores. Uh, she is one of 20 level three judges, and they had reduced that number this year, so it was even more competition to get in, and she is the only level three judge in the United States. Nice. Yes. Good job, Marianne. Yeah, I was so excited for her, so proud, and she'll be doing... Uh, the World Championships in Doha, Qatar for 2019, and then the Under-20 Championships in Nairobi in 2020. Awesome. So she already knows her assignments yes. for the next... Yes. So that was really, really exciting. I'm that is so... a big deal. It's huge. So very, very cool. Well, on that note, we will wrap it up for this week. Next week, we are going to have the first part of our interview with three-time Olympian and gold medaling diver, Laura Wilkinson, who is fabulous. We had such a good time talking with her, so you'll want to be sure to join us for that. And thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Fever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. I need some 1964 Tokyo artifacts.